there. Welcome into Downtown, the podcast, episode number 74. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where we originate the Downtown Show Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear the show on the Zone Radio stations of Maine, streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Uh, this week, it's a very special edition of the show. Uh, today, the day the podcast is released, is a big day in the history of television. 60 years ago, October 2nd, 1959, CBS television premiered a brand new science fiction anthology series called The Twilight Zone. Produced by Rod Serling, he also wrote a number of the episodes and it became a landmark show in television history. We want to celebrate that day by talking with several people about uh, both The Twilight Zone and Rod Serling. I can think of no better place to start than talking with the daughter of Rod Serling. His youngest daughter, Anne Serling, shares some memories of the creator of The Twilight Zone. So much emphasis on your father and his story, but um, when I went back and revisited your wonderful book, As I Knew Him, my dad, Rod Serling, reminded yet again that the Rod Serling you and your family grew up with was very different than the iconic television image. Absolutely, and I think that would surprise a lot of people. And part of that was his, and we saw some of the sense of humor in Twilight Zone, but uh, it was great to read the stories of uh, the voices that he would do, the games he would play with you. Uh, I, I, the milk game is one of my favorites. Can you, can you share that story? Yeah, he would he would try to get my sister and I to drink our milk by telling us, don't drink that, don't drink that. And then he'd whip around, and, of course, we'd gulp it down, and he'd turn back and say, who drank my milk? And of <laughs> course, you know, at our age, we just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and he had nicknames uh, for all of you as well. And I think people might find it uh, interesting to note that you spent a lot of time watching the Flintstones, which was a favorite, and, and was it... Was it Huckleberry Hound, where he did the voice of one of the characters? Yeah, he was He was really actually quite good at that. You know, he, he started his career in, in radio, and he went to Antioch College, and uh, they had a work-study program where he wrote and directed and acted in, in the scripts that he wrote, and he would do Russian accents and, and things like that. And, and uh, growing up, back, circling back to what you said about the Flintstones, yes, we weren't allowed to actually watch TV during the week. It was my mom's rule, and so my dad and I would sneak, uh, yeah, Huckleberry Hound and the Flintstones, and uh, yeah, it was great, great fun, great times. Uh, and he wrote about this a lot in his teleplays and, and interviews. He spoke about it through the years. Uh, his time serving in the Pacific in World War II had a profound impact on him, and then uh, coupled with the loss of his dad while he was serving overseas. That was something that he dealt with in many ways throughout his life, wasn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, he wasn't, he was clearly uh, broken in the war and he, he wasn't unique to that. I, you know, I think any, any vet goes through that. And of course, back then they didn't really have an awareness of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, I think it was called shell shock at that point, but there really wasn't any treatment. And in fact, before he went to the war, he was, uh, he thought when he went to college, he'd major in language and literature. But as he said, the war put an end to that. And he realized that his original plan, he wanted to work with kids because he, uh, in teaching them phys ed, because he, he liked kids. And 
but uh, when he got back, he, he said that he had to get it off his chest, get it out of his gut, and he changed his major to language and literature. Yeah, and in many, in many ways, that writing seemed to be therapy for him. Oh, absolutely, and I, and I think uh, he would say that too. I, I think uh, I don't. I think a lot of writers feel like that too. You know, it's cathartic. But certainly, my dad, um, because also, uh, as you said, when he was overseas, even though uh, the war was over, he didn't have enough points to come home, and um, his dad had died, and they wouldn't let him return for the funeral, and uh, that was, you know, needless to say, agonizing for him. His dad was only fifty-two when he died. So in a, in a sense, you know, that script, Walking Distance, which is, I think he would have said, although he switched which were his favorites all the time, but I think, you know, in the end, Rich, he would have said that was the one that was nearest and dearest to his heart, because certainly the dialogue that he put in for the father, you know, it was sort of giving my dad permission to, to move on and, you know, things in the future can be as beautiful as lovely as they were in the past, so... Well, that, that's my favorite, too, and, uh, and for similar reasons, my mom died uh, when I was pretty young, and, and he talked about uh, that that was often his, his driving urge in a lot of his stories, was that, that desire to somehow turn back the clock, maybe not to go there forever, but to be able to revisit the past. Yeah, he told a class that he taught at Ithaca College, he had a propensity to deal with the past, to write about the past. I watched that, by the way, you uh, sent me a link to some videos of his Ithaca classes, and I watched those today. They were absolutely wonderful. Aren't they? Aren't they? I, I love seeing my dad in, you know, sort of that natural format and just hearing him talk. And, and I've actually heard from students that uh, had my dad as a teacher and, you know, just thought the world of him. So it's, it's been, um, I, I just love to hear these personal stories. We're talking with Ann Serling here on Downtown. You mentioned Antioch, and he went there after serving in the military, and so many wonderful stories about his his time there and the kind of person that we saw through his work has certainly emerged. I love the story about him getting angry with anyone who didn't get their hair cut from a Mr. Pemberton. Can you explain the reason why? Uh, yes, he was a, the um, African-American barber, and, and my dad thought that everybody should go to him and was angry that if, if they didn't, because they, he felt, of course, they needed to support him. That's a wonderful story. Um, his hometown of Binghamton figures prominently, of course, in walking distance, and, and that's revisited a lot. And there's also uh, a little slice of your life uh, involved in the fact that uh, you gathered as a family. I found this really interesting. You didn't watch a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes as kids, but every Christmas season, you watched the great episode with Art Carney, Night of the Meek. Right. My dad had, um, first he had an office downstairs in the house, and then he had one built in the backyard. And every Christmas, we would watch Night of the Meek lying on the floor in his office. So, yeah, that was uh, one of the first that I was introduced to. The first one I think I ever watched was uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. <laughs> And uh, I, I knew my dad was a writer, but and a lot of my friends had parents that were writers, but I didn't know exactly what he was writing until I watched that one. And even though Richard Matheson wrote that great episode, it terrified me to have my dad, you know, involved in that and, you know, the monster on the wing and, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
But he was so busy and wrote so many scripts for Twilight Zone and, and of course, other screenplays through the years as well. But what I find fascinating, your, your story is that you had no idea how busy he was because he was always present in your lives. He was there for dinner. He was there to play with you. And yeah, you didn't go into his office when he was writing. But other than that, he, he was not an absent father by any stretch. No, not at all. And and to what you said, yeah, he wrote 92 of 156 of the Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, so yeah, he was very busy. He'd write, he'd get up very early in the morning, go out in the office and write. And uh, then he'd probably drive over to the studio most days. And, but yeah, he was always there for dinner. And when I came home from school, we'd play basketball. I never felt that he wasn't available or, or wasn't present. Sometimes, you know, Rich, when I looked at him, and I, I could tell sometimes when he was writing in his head and he seemed a little distant. But, um, yeah, we had, you know, and we, he and I would occasionally take trips together. Uh, so that, those were special as well. His happiest days were clearly spent uh, at the cottage there in upstate New York. Is that still in the family? It is still in the family. It was built on my mother's side, um, so it's probably about 135 years old now. My husband and I were actually married on the cottage porch, but it's it's also about an hour from Binghamton, which, you know, my dad's hometown, and uh, every summer he would take a, a pilgrimage and drive back and go by his old house and the, and the carousel and, you know, just revisit these moments of his past. Would he be surprised 60 years after the debut of Twilight Zone that we're still talking about that show as one of the greats of all time, that there are reboots, and, and that he is revered to this day as one of the most original people in the history of television when he famously said, my stuff is momentarily adequate? He would be staggered, Rich. He would just be staggered that, uh, you know, his legacy has survived all these years. Um and in fact, there's a program in Binghamton that the, all the fifth graders study the Twilight Zone. It's called the Fifth Dimension. And I think my dad would have felt this was the greatest honor. These kids watch these, and they're, they're so smart, and, and they really get it. They learn about you know prejudice and mob mentality and scapegoating and irony, and um, it's just a tremendous program. Well, I, I'm a teacher as well, and I have used Twilight Zone episodes and scripts through the years. And when I posted on social media that you were coming on, I had three other friends who were teachers who all made comments about using the Twilight Zone to teach writing, to talk about values, every bit as relevant today as they were 55, 60 years ago. Yeah, well, you know, he dealt with uh, moral issues and social issues and uh my friend Mark Dewitziak, who who writes a lot about Twain, and I guess Twain said he was a he Twain was a moralist in disguise, and he said your father the same could be said of your father, you know. But he wrote about the human condition and uh, time changes, but we don't. Whatever that quote is. Hmm. But you only had your dad for 20 years in your life. He died so young back in 1975. But uh, in some way. Do the reboots, do the, the Twilight Zone marathons, and the lengthy life of this series um, keep him even more alive to you? Absolutely. You know, in writing my memoir, it took me really, I had started another book sometime after he died uh, called In His Absence, and I, I hadn't worked through my grief at all, and I wasn't ready to finish that book. But writing this book as I knew him took about seven, eight years, 
but it was so cathartic, and you know, just to work through the grief and uh, have him back like that, so present. Well, it's a wonderful book. Uh, as I knew him, my dad, Rod Serling, and uh, it's it's great to learn about Rod Serling, but it's also a wonderful story about family and, and how even the busiest of people uh, can still be there and be be a father and be a huge part of their children's lives. And we're having a wonderful time all this week remembering your dad and the show, and it's been a real treat for us to talk with you this afternoon, Anne. Thanks so much, Rich. Nice to talk to you as well. And Serling talking about her memories of her dad, Rod Serling, here on our Salute to the Twilight Zone. When we come back, we'll uh, dig into some of the details of the series with some experts and an actor who appeared in two episodes of the Twilight Zone. Coming up next on Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. We're back on the Downtown the Podcast in our 60th anniversary salute to the Twilight Zone. And let's talk about the show more with author Mark Dewidziak, who wrote the book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. A book that was in many ways inspired by your daughter and, and what I hope to do with my son in a few years, and that's sit him down and introduce him to the classics, starting with the Twilight Zone. Well, you know, you can't do that... Uh... You can't sort of design that. They have some say in that. Um, and Becky was a uh, – she discovered those box sets on her own. If you, if you force them on them, they don't tend to do it. Uh, but she kind of discovered these things on her own. They were – that makes it her discovery. So she was watching all of these – this classic television. She was watching I Love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke show and the Andy Griffith show – and uh, the joke around our house was, you know, one of these days this kid's going to be shocked to find out they're making TV in color these days <laughs> because she just – she lived in a black-and-white world for a while. And then she she, she got to Night Gallery, um, and she actually watched Night Gallery first, and she really liked Night Gallery. And so when she turned 15, I just turned to her and said, you know, okay, you have done your undergraduate work in classic television. You've <laughs> done everything you need to do to get full credits. It's time to start your postgraduate work. It's past time that you enter the Twilight Zone. So we did a forced march through all 156 episodes. We started right from the beginning and went straight through, and it took us about four months to do it. And um, as I recount in the book, we, uh, we hit a very early episode called Escape Clause with David Wayne, who plays a hypochondriac who makes a deal with the devil. And... Um, Anybody who knows anything about the Twilight Zone knows this is not going to end well. Today. <laughs> uh, so when the episode was over and it had run its course, I jokingly turned to Becky and said, you just let that be a lesson to you. Uh, always read contracts. 
Always read them through. Oh, don't, don't look for every loophole. And uh, when we, I, we, we both kind of laughed. And then when it was, I thought about it for a second. I thought, now wait, just wait a minute here. <laughs> Think about all the people who signed bad contracts during the, the, the banking and housing crisis. How much better off would we have been if people just read contracts? So I, I looked back at her and said, I, I, you know, I kind of mean this. I'm being serious here. Well, this became a running gag with us. I, I can run a joke into the ground with the best of them. So after every episode, I'd say, let that be a lesson to you. And I'm a slow learner. It took several weeks before the penny dropped. And I thought, stupid, you got a book here. <laughs> so each and every one of these is a lesson. Each and every one of these is, is, is a life lesson. It's a cautionary tale. Of course they are. All you need to do is to, is to extract them. And this is your Twilight Zone book. I've been I, Twilight Zone's my favorite show of all time, um, and that's saying something. Uh, since I've written books on other TV shows, uh, but if if I'd had my druthers, the Twilight Zone would have been my second book. I had just finished my first book in the early. I was working on it in the early 1980s, and as it was coming to a conclusion, I knew my second book was going to be the history of the Twilight Zone. Uh, I was living and working in East Tennessee at the time. And, you know, perhaps that's not the best place to research a book on the Twilight Zone. <laughs> um, but I was, I was getting enough interviews where I kind of fooled myself into thinking, I'm actually writing this book. Yeah. I got some interviews. Uh, Donna Douglas came to town to shoot a commercial, and I ran out to the filming site. And I, and I interviewed her, and I talked to her about doing Eye of the Beholder. And my first book was about um, a, a, a classic uh, regional theater in Virginia, the Barter Theater, and two of the people who had gone there was Cla- were Claude Aikens and Fritz Weaver. Oh, wow. So I interviewed them, and they were on the Twilight Zone. So I was you know, doing an interview here and there, and then one day, of course, I walked into a bookstore, and there it was. <laughs> Mark Scott's Degrees, the Twilight Zone companion. And I couldn't even be mad because Mark had done such a great job in writing the, 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 the very first history of the show. And, uh, um, I love that book, and I still love it, and I think it still is. A, it's an incredible book, and it set the standard for books about TV shows. And uh, But all these years later, I always thought, foolish though it may sound, I've been owed a Twilight Zone book. And, 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 and you got it with, with these... You got it with these lessons, and I, I want to talk about a few of the lessons, and there are uh, sure. 50 of them in the book, but I wanted to highlight a few. And the first one, and, and I, when I read it, I thought, oh, wow, yeah, that's how I feel. My wife will not watch, cannot stand Time Enough at Last with Burgess Meredith, widely acknowledged as one of the great shows in the series, and that's one of the lessons in the book. Nobody said life was fair, and, and as you point out, it's a rare Twilight Zone episode because usually people, people there's justice in the Twilight Zone. People get their comeuppance, but good people often get their reward. But this does not happen to poor Burgess Meredith Henry Bemis. That's right, and and, and it is a, it does stand out as the exception. Uh, and and you said that it's one of the most popular. I would say that if you had a vote among Twilight Zone fans, uh, it would come out as number one. I, I, I and in most votes, it usually does. Um, so I was sort of treading on heresy uh, by, by suggesting <laughs> it was not only not my favorite episode, it's not even my favorite Burgess Meredith episode. But um, I had uh, – how could I not include it in the book? You know, and I tell the story in the book of, of, of going to uh, 
to dinner with Harlan Ellison and, and his wife, uh, Susan, and a few other friends. And we fell to talking about the Twilight Zone. And where two or more are gathered, you're going to get people, oh, oh, the broken glasses here. And all that. And <laughs> I was quiet. And, and Harlan finally looked at me and said, what's the matter? Don't you like that episode? And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, well, why not? And then I explained, you know, exactly articulated what you just said. And the table fell silent because they couldn't argue with it. It's like, you know, he's right. Um, so, you know, it is a bit of an outlier for the Twilight Zone, but it's also, I had to put a lesson to it. And the lesson was provided by my mother, who loved to tell us. Nobody said life was fair. I didn't like it when she said it. I don't like it in the Twilight Zone, but I accept the wisdom of it. I accept the reality of it. Nobody did say life was fair. So perhaps that is the, the, the that certainly the lesson I put on that episode. Uh, and, uh, another, and as I always say to people, I don't say these are the only lessons that you can derive from it. You know, everybody right. has their own interpretation. Well, another lesson many of us got from our parents. Be careful what you wish for. And there are a number of examples of that <laughs> adage throughout the Twilight Zone. You know, I I have never, uh, I think from college on, I have, I have never signed a contract or entered into negotiation without imagining that Rod Serling was standing behind me, <laughs> getting ready to talk if I made the wrong move. And you know, <laughs> in, your, in your life, there are these moments where, you're about to do something incredibly stupid. And if you do, Rod's going to start talking, you know, submitted for your approval. Picture <laughs> of an idiot who just signed a contract, you know, and you don't want to do that. You don't want to let Rod talk. Um, be careful what you wish for is a lesson which fits a lot of Twilight Zone episodes. Um, and that also comes down to, again, you are rewarded and punished in kind for what you take into the Twilight Zone. If you take in greed and avarice and bigotry and prejudice and pettiness, you are going to be rewarded in kind for that. You are indeed making a cosmic, cosmic target of yourself. Um, and, but on the flip side, if you take in kindness and charity and mercy and love, you are rewarded for those things. You know, people always think that the Twilight Zone is a scary place. Only what's your packing? <laughs> <laughs> Check your backpack. Indeed. In there. We're talking with Mark DeWitziak, author of Everything I Learned, I, Everything I Need to Know, I Learned in the Twilight Zone. I thought this one was especially interesting. Uh, don't live in the past. And yet Rod Serling oh, yeah. went there so many times, talked about his predilection for, for revisiting the past, walking distance being uh, one of uh, many great examples, a stop at Willoughby and so many other in the series. It is, you know, it, and, and there are so many people who are trapped in the past. They are trapped in high school. They are trapped in um, past um, hurts, past, you know, that, that, that's got a lot of levels to it. And, 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 and I would be the first to say that with a lot of these lessons, easier said than done. Um, you know, the Twilight Zone does not, is not saying that these are things that you should do because they're easy. Uh, the, these are things which are tough. And, uh, but we all know people who uh, in some way are trapped in the past. And, you know, Rod was nostalgic for the past, but, you know, he lived in the present. He, he, would, he, would, he was in touch with the past. There's a difference right. between sort of being in touch with your childhood and being in touch with your inner child 
and being trapped uh, in the past or then living in the past. So, I mean, it's a, that's a very fine line to walk. And Rod was able to sort of tap into his childhood and make it work for him. I think there was something very symbolic about the fact that every summer he drove back to Binghamton and mm. he was alone. And he would walk the streets of his hometown in his childhood to sort of reconnect once a year. He didn't uh, do that all year round. I think, you know, there was a one time that he did it, and it was a renewal thing uh, to sort of just reconnect and remind himself where he came from, remind himself where, where, where it all started. And uh, I think that it was probably, in a, you know, you, you can't get into Rod Serling's head. Uh, we can never know definitively. So this is armchair psychology at best. Uh, but, you know, I, I imagine it was immensely uh, renewing for him to go back to Binghamton. We've talked all week about the Twilight Zone. Rod's daughter, Anne, was on with us a couple of days ago. And it's, uh, isn't she a delight? Oh, she absolutely. Wonderful. <laughs> and it's so remarkable that this show, nearly 60 years old, has held up so well. And I think one of the reasons you talk about in the book, and, and it's the fact that Rod Serling had such great respect for his audience. Well, yes. I mean, and, and that's that is kind of, you know, I, I just did a, I framed a, a series of talks, which I did in January and February uh, around Northeast Ohio on uh, fantasy television and starting with the 60s and working our way up to the current crop, of which there's a lot. Um, and in so many ways, the Twilight Zone is the headwaters, but not just for great fantasy, horror, science fiction television, basically for all television. And the reason I say that is, you know, as a working TV critic, uh, since the Carter administration, I might add, I have interviewed dozens upon dozens of showrunners, people who have invented shows, who are writer, executive producers over shows, and almost all of them cite Rod Serling as their hero. Almost, almost to the person, if you ask them, who was the biggest influence on you? It comes back to Rod Serling. Time and time again. I just did an interview last night with, with Frank Darabont uh, and, uh, for the, uh, the upcoming book. Uh, and you know, here's Frank Darabont, who's done the Shawshank Redemption and uh, the Green Mile. And he told me that his favorite show of all time is The Twilight Zone. And one of the greatest influences on him was Rod Serling. And I cannot tell you how many times somebody had Matt Weiner uh, said that. David Chase, uh, who, who created The Sopranos, said that at, it, it, at time and time again. So Rod Serling is not only sort of the, the pivotal person for fantasy television, but in so many ways all of quality television. Because Rod, he was, he was the, standing there at a time when there was a lot of condemnation about television being what Newton Minow called the vast wasteland. Right. And what people sort of forget about that speech was that Minow, when he called TV a vast wasteland, as the uh, chairman of the, uh, of the Federal Communications Commission, he also stopped and said, but when television is good, it's better than anything else. And for an example, he gave the Twilight Zone. Uh, he was saying right there, this is what television should strive for. And in fact, a lot of people took up that 
that challenge because, and, and did try to make intelligent television and did try to create television that made the assumption that there was intelligent life on the other side of the TV screen. Author Mark Dewidziak with us on our Salute to the Twilight Zone. And let's talk more about some of those classic episodes. Our conversation with Nick Parisi, author of the book Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. Is it safe to say that much of the work that Serling did in the years before 1959 really uh, created the path that led to the Twilight Zone? Oh, no, no doubt, uh, in a lot of different ways. I mean, he uh, loved science fiction and fantasy long before The Twilight Zone came around. Uh, but unfortunately for Rod Serling, he just was never able, never given the opportunity to actually do it on television. He'd done some very uh, small-scale stuff in Cincinnati when he worked there uh, just out of college. He did some science fiction and fantasy. But on a grand scale, on the national network, he just wasn't given the opportunity until The Twilight Zone. So, so he had that background, and then, of course, his desire to address some socially relevant topics in straightforward drama. That was also the last time he didn't doing, you know, in straightforward drama, and he was able to do it in The Twilight Zone in a different way by doing it in, uh, in a science fiction format. So, yeah, so he was prepared by the time The Twilight Zone came around. The series premiered on CBS in October of 1959, but is it safe to say that essentially the pilot aired earlier on the old Desilu Playhouse, uh, his story, The Time Element. I believe so. Um, there's a little bit of debate about that, but uh, but the fact is that, yes, the, the, the Time Element, which aired on the Desilu Playhouse in uh, 1958, uh, you know, almost a year before The Twilight Zone debuted, was intended to be The Twilight Zone pilot. Um, Serling had submitted it to the network as The Twilight Zone, The Time Element, and the network rejected it as a pilot. They just um, they didn't think it would work as a pilot. They thought it was a little too... Uh, a little too out there. The ending was a little too ambiguous, and that the mainstream audience just wouldn't wouldn't get it, and so it was shelved. But um, strangely enough, the Desilu Playhouse, which also aired on CBS, they liked the script, and they decided that they would produce it. So it was produced, and uh, it got tremendous reaction from from the viewers, and it really did spark CBS into giving Twilight Zone a, a better look. Uh, another look, and that's what um, you know. What brought the, the actual pilot, which was "Where Is Everybody," and aired in October of 1959. And as you point out in the book, "Where Is Everybody," in many ways, was a safer choice to be the first episode to try and lure in sponsors. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it was one of those happy accidents. You know, if, if if the time element had not been rejected, and one other pilot that Rod Serling wrote called The Happy Place, if that had not been rejected, he wouldn't have gotten the uh, um, Where Is Everybody? And it really is the perfect pilot because it really gives us everything that The Twilight Zone is about, but it also does it in a way that's accessible and not too, you know, not too strange for the for the average sponsor or network executive to get their brain around. It's it's a plot, and it's a it's even the twist at the end is something that could actually happen. It turns out that this astronaut has just been hallucinating this entire uh, scenario that we've been witnessing. And it could it could happen, so it was explainable, and and it really made the made the show accessible and, and was successful in selling selling the series. Although, as you point out in the book, uh, the actor in that episode, Earl Holloman wanted to add another twist at the end to uh, make it a, a bit more ambiguous. 
Yeah, he had an idea, and you know, I, I just spoke with Aron a, a week or so ago, and he was—he kind of took me to task actually for this part of the book because he—he he felt that I made it sound like he really had this idea, and and uh, you know, he was taking credit for this idea, which he wasn't. But it was a suggestion that that he had made, and the suggestion was that you know, in the episode he plays a. a well, in the, in, at the beginning, he doesn't know who he is. I mean, that's the whole plot of the episode is that he doesn't know who he is and he doesn't know where he is. And, and it turns out that he is an astronaut who's been going, undergoing an experiment of uh, isolation to see if the, an astronaut could handle the isolation that it would take to go to the moon and back again. And um, he comes out of it and he realizes he's been hallucinating. Well, he had an idea that, hey, you know, what if after I'm done with this and I get out of this isolation booth, I, I reach into my pocket and I have a... I have a page from the uh, from the phone book that I was looking through in my hallucination, you know. And and Sterling very smartly said, "Oh, that's that's too. Then that that's going to ruin this. It's I love it, but it's too out there. It's gonna it's gonna be too uh, strange for the for the you know for the people to to handle at this point." And uh, but when Rod Sterling wrote the adaptation of this episode as a short story, he actually added a very very similar twist where. The character, Wilhelm's character, reaches into his pocket and finds a ticket stub from the movie theater that he had gone to in his hallucination. So the Twilight Zone kind of crept through into into reality in that in that way. I was looking this morning at the episode list from season one. Oh my, my gosh, uh, Walking Distance, my favorite of all time. Time enough at last, and when the sky was opened, uh, Hitchhiker, Purple Testament, Monsters Are Two on Maple Street, a stop at Willoughby. Boy, you can make a pretty good case that that no television show has ever had a stronger first season. Oh, I would absolutely make that case. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The first season of The Twilight Zone is, is really a, a sustained excellence from, you know, uh, very very few valleys in that season from, from episode one until episode, I think there were 36 episodes in the first season. And, and you know, television shows don't do that anymore. I mean, nowadays you have a, a Netflix series that have 10 episodes per season, you know, I mean, The Twilight Zone produced 36 episodes and, and probably 30 of them are great and the other six are okay. You know, it's really... And Rod Sterling wrote, wrote most of them, um, you know, and so it's, yeah, it really is pretty amazing. Uh, when you move to season two, the biggest change, and people who are maybe not devout followers and viewers of the show don't realize that Rod Sterling didn't appear on camera until that second season. Right, right. He was only off, he was the off-camera narrator for the first season. And uh, in the very last episode of the first season, season, which happened to be written by Richard Matheson, uh, Richard Matheson wrote a scene in which Rod Sterling would appear on screen. It was the only time he ever interacted with the characters in, that, in an episode, either before or, or after. And um, that was the first time he was on screen. And then beginning the second season, he actually appeared as the on-screen narrator at the beginning of each episode. Uh, some great episodes in season two as well. I think my favorite from that season, well, a, a couple of them. Uh, one is is certainly Eye of the Beholder, one of the most famous episodes in a classic Twilight Zone. And, and a lovely backstory of that, too, uh, with a young actress that would become famous shortly afterward for her work in the Beverly Hillbillies. But we don't actually hear her voice in this episode. No, no, Donna Douglas. Um, well, we do actually hear her voice at the very end. Um, she does get to speak a few lines at the end. And um, I think she actually uh, sounds enough like the actress under the bandages to, to pull it off. Um, and she doesn't have to say very much, so we are, we aren't, it's not as jarring as it could have been if she had to really deliver a lot of lines. But, um, but yeah, the voice under the bandages is an actress by the name of Maxine Stewart. 
and they just felt that she had more of a um, an emotive uh, quality to her voice um, that was necessary for that that particular role. But yes, I the Beholder is to me is the is the quintessential. So that is that is the episode of you know the Martians come down and want to know what the Twilight Zone is all about. That's the one I, I show them because it's that's that has absolutely everything that we have come to expect from a, a Twilight Zone episode. And another of my favorites from that second season, and one that became a, an annual tradition in the Serling household, was Night of the Meek uh, with Art Carney. But Rod Serling wasn't always thrilled with it because it's one of those episodes that they had to shoot on videotape as a cost-cutting measure. Exactly. Yeah, there were six episodes that were shot on videotape in the second season. And for anybody who, you know, it's one of those frequently asked questions that people see those episodes and they say, what's going on here? Because it just looks completely different from all the other episodes of the series. And, and the reason was because, yes, it was shot on videotape and it just it gives a completely different look to the, to the, to the show. And uh, Night of the Meek happened to be one of those. And when the initial you know, rushes or dailies were coming through with Night of the Meek. Rod Sterling was very, very disappointed in it. He thought it was uh, coming out terribly. And, and even after it aired, I'm not sure that he was all that happy with it. But over time, apparently his his opinion changed on it because he did uh, he did show it to his uh, daughter and daughters and their friends every Christmas. And, and he did much later in his life say that it, it was one of his favorites. And Art Carney was one of Rod Sterling's favorite actors, if not if not his favorite actor. And he's just tremendous in, in that episode. We're talking with Nick Parisi, the author of Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination. Season three of The Twilight Zone, uh, certainly the toll was beginning to catch up with Rod Serling at this point, but still some some wonderful episodes. Uh, it's a Good Life, the uh, the harrowing episode with a young Billy Moomy, uh, To Serve Man, one of the great episodes of all time. And for me, uh, what I think is the scariest Twilight Zone episode of all, Little Girl Lost. Oh really? Wow. Well, that's yeah. I mean, it's certainly one of the classic episodes. Um, but yeah, it's um, I think it's probably scary in a very unnerving way. I mean, especially if you happen to have a daughter, and mm. you know, you can imagine yourself in this scenario of, you know, the uh, the episode of course is uh, you know a little girl rolls off the bed and rolls through the wall into another dimension, and 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 the father, the parents are, you know, they. They're trying to grab her back from the other dimension, can't find her, and hearing her cry from another dimension and not being able to reach her. And that, yeah, that is certainly very unnerving. Um, there, you know, the, the Twilight Zone, you know, people find it scary, of course. You know, it is, it is a, a very unnerving, a very creepy show. So you kind of get, um, you can get arguments about what the scariest episode of the, of the series was. I mean, there certainly were, uh, were plenty to choose from. Well, yeah, and, and, being a little kid at the time, around the same age, a little bit younger than Billy Moomy, I never wanted to encounter him anywhere after that episode. <laughs> I'm sure, and and probably even more so when you saw it's a good life. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's that's probably his most well-known uh, known episode. Uh, now, going into season four, uh, the Twilight Zone was in trouble, and they ended up using it as a, I think as a mid-season replacement. But because of that. The decision was made to go to hour-long episodes. Uh, that that just didn't quite work out, did it? It didn't work out, no. But the strange thing about that, or the ironic thing, is a couple of ironies about that. One is that you know Rod Serling really envisioned the Twilight Zone as an hour-long series from the beginning. Uh, he pitched it as an hour-long series, and he always really wanted an hour-long series. Uh, the time element was an hour long. Um, the first pilots that he wrote, the first pilot, uh, the Happy Place, was was intended to be an hour long. So. He always had in mind to do an hour show, and he kind of reluctantly agreed to do it as a half hour from the get-go, and obviously it, it worked. 
Um, but what happened was, even after the second season, believe it or not, the network was starting to say to Rod Serling, hey, maybe we should do this as an hour. They were, they were kind of pushing it a little bit. And Serling still had his, his, you know, he in the back of his mind, he still wanted that bigger canvas to create. You know, he wanted more, more room, more time to develop characters. And, and he obviously didn't do it for the third season. But in between the third and the fourth, when it wasn't renewed immediately, the conversation began again about maybe we'll do this as an hour. And it wasn't, you know, it was, it was kind of a mutual thing between Serling and the network. And they, they gave it a shot and it, it didn't work. Most, for most fans, those hour long episodes are, are padded. They just don't quite work as well as the half hour episodes. And so it was an experiment that didn't, you know, didn't quite work out. And then they went back to the half hour for the, for the last fifth season. There are still some great moments though, in that, in that fourth season, from your perspective, what's the best of the hour long twilight zones? My particular, I have, I have two favorites from the fourth season. One is uh, on Thursday we leave for home, mm. uh, starring uh, James Whitmore about a, uh, a c- group of colonists uh, from Earth that go to another planet to basically escape the, the you know, the uh, terrible environment on Earth, and they become, they want to come back, they want to come home. They've been away for too long, and they, they finally realize they want to come home. And it's about this man who's held this community together on another planet for so long, and now all of a sudden. They're going to go home, and he's going to lose them. And how does he deal with with that? Um, it's a great character study, and it's a beautiful piece of writing from Serling. That's that's certainly one of my favorites. My other, my other favorite is one called um, the New Exhibit, which um, you know Stephen King called this the you know the closest that that the Twilight Zone ever got the true horror, just pure horror. It's about uh, a man with a, a a wax museum. He becomes enamored with these wax figures. And the wax museum is going to close, so he takes the wax figures and keeps them in his basement. And they come to life essentially and start committing murders. And and um, that's that. I think that's a really, really good and underrated episode. And even in season five, uh, as the show was wrapping up, and we talked with you, there were even there were discussions about a sixth season. But um, some of the most ce- uh, celebrated episodes of all time in that final year, including William Shatner's unforgettable appearance in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Yeah, the fifth season is, is very strange to when you, when you take it kind of episode by episode. The, the fifth season has a couple, as, as you mentioned, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, it's an undisp- you know, undisputed classic of the series. It also had, the fifth season also had um, Little Girl Lost with Talking Tina. I'm not Little Girl, I'm sorry. The Living Doll with Talking Tina was in the fifth season. Uh, with with uh, Telly Savalas. Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, with Telly Savalas, yeah. Um, you know, In Praise of Pip is one of my favorites, which, yes. again, Billy Mooney and, and, and Jack Klugman. Um, you know, that's that, that was the first episode of the fifth season, one of my favorites. Um, so this, the fifth season has some really, really classic and really good episodes, and then it has the absolute worst of the series. Um, if you were to pick the 10 worst episodes of the series, I think you could probably get eight of them out of the fifth season, if not all 10. Um, so it really had the biggest gap between really good and really bad in, in that particular season. I want to ask you about the bad in a moment, but you mentioned in praise of Pip, and, and as I recall, too, that was the first network television show that made any reference to the Vietnam War that at that point was still a conflict with some advisors there. It was uh, 1964. I mean, way ahead of uh, of any other uh, of any other television series. Uh, Rod Sterling, you know, ad- at least addressed it. He just, at least mentioned it. And the Jack Klugman character says there isn't even supposed to be a war there. You know, his his boy is is dying, and there isn't supposed to be a war there. Um, so this was early on in the conflict. As you said, we just had advisors on the ground there, supposedly, and and this happened. So yeah, that's a, that's a historic uh, episode just for that reason. 
All right, now for me, the worst ever is the Bewitchin' Pool. What's your least favorite episode of all time? Well, well, that well that happens to be the very last episode of the series, the Bewitching Pool, and that, you know, so it really went out on a whimper. Um, and I would agree that that's one of the worst uh, for sure. Um, my least favorite is, is another fifth season episode called "Come Wander with Me." Oh gosh, yeah. Oh, horrible. And, I, and and every time I mention this episode, people ask me to describe it. And I say, you know, it's so bad, I can't even describe it. I, I just, I can't even really give you the plot of it. And it really doesn't even make sense. Even though Twilight Zone sense, it's just, it's just awful. Um, that's, that's definitely my, my least favorite. Uh, Ron Serling went back to actors that uh, he had great respect for and who worked well in the show. Uh, I think especially of Burgess Meredith, uh, Jack Klugman, but there were a number of them who did multiple episodes. Who do you think... Who do you think is the quintessential Twilight Zone actor? Oh, you know, it's so hard because the the, the two that come that are certainly in vying for the lead are, are Burgess Meredith and, and Jack Klugman. Now, they're, they're the two that starred in four episodes apiece. And I think they both kind of exhibit these qualities that Sterling was always going for. I would give the, the edge to Jack Klugman. I think Jack Klugman uh, embodies that everyman quality a little bit more than... than Burgess Meredith did. Burgess Meredith could be could play kind of the nebbish more than Jack Klugman could, but I think Jack Klugman really is the quintessential um, actor for the Twilight Zone. And as and since you mentioned it, um, you know we're going to be celebrating the 60th anniversary this year at, a, at something called Sterling Fest in Binghamton, New York, in Rod Sterling's hometown. And right now we're doing a, a vote online at RodSterling.com where people can vote for best actor, best actress, and best episode, and all of these things. And, and it's going to be the first official. Uh, official vote for these things, and we're going to we're going to uh, present the awards at at Serling Fest, and you know be the first uh, official award sanctioned by the Serling Estate and the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, and and it'll be fun to see what what people come up with. But uh, Jack Klugman will certainly be uh, one of the uh, choices for best actor. Well, let's talk more about Serling Fest. It's coming up the first weekend in October, and boy, you've got a stellar cast of presenters. Uh, can you talk a little more about what people will see if they make the trip to Binghamton? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, it's going to be October 4th, 5th, and 6th, so it's the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, the 16th anniversary is October 2nd of 19, well, 1959, 19, you know, 2019 is the 16th anniversary. And um, we're going to be doing it at three different locations. Uh, uh, so if you go to rockstarling.com, you can get the information on the locations. The main location will be Saturday at the Forum Theater in Binghamton. And we have 11, at my last count, 11 different writers who have written books, substantial books, about Rod Sterling or the Twilight Zone or or, or Night Gallery and um, and you know so we're going to have presentations, readings, and signings from from pretty much all of them. Um, Mark Dewitziak will be there. He wrote uh, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. Um, Scott Skelton will be there. He wrote the the only Night Gallery uh, reference guide called uh, An After Hours Tour, Rod Sterling's Night Gallery. Um, and this year is actually the 50th anniversary of the Night Gallery premiere mm. in 1969. So we'll be uh, celebrating that as well. And so people will be able to see the authors, um, interact with the authors. We'll have, um, we're going to have, I mentioned The Happy Place earlier, one of the unproduced pilots. Well, we're going to have a dramatic reading of that script for the first time ever. People will be able to hear that script and performed, um, not, you know, uh, performed as a, as a dramatic reading. Um, that'll be on Friday, on the Friday night. So, so that's one of the things. We're going to have a, you know, Twilight on trivia and, and the award ceremony. It's, it's, it's going to be a great time. Author Nick Parisi here on our salute to the Twilight Zone on its 60th anniversary. And before we wrap it up, let's hear from a guy who was on two episodes of the show as a young actor. Stephen Talbot has gone on to a very successful career as a documentary filmmaker, but he has fond memories of his work 
in the Twilight Zone. You did two episodes, Static and The Fugitive. Uh, now, Rod Serling didn't write either of those episodes. Did you have much interaction with him? I did. I was really lucky. The Twilight Zone was my absolute favorite show when I was a kid. Um, it was a fantastic show, as you know, and it was also a very moral show. I think uh, I learned a lot of moral lessons reinforced by my parents in school um, about how to live in the world. Uh, it, it was a really important series, and of course, it was it was just brilliantly written. Um, and I was lucky enough to do two episodes. They were they were not the best episodes of Twilight Zone. One I had a very small part in, but I was just so honored to be on that show and uh, to meet Rod Sterling. Uh, in, in one of the episodes, um, he did one of his famous introductions, uh, sitting on a park bench. Um, it was a scene, a baseball game. I, I was the ump of the baseball game. <laughs> and uh, he, he was right there. And he was great. You know, he was so smart. He was very liberal politically. He was an intelligent man. He, he cared seriously about issues in the world. Um, and he was... He was just like he was on TV, and my experience as a, as a boy meeting him. Uh, he looked like one of those characters out of Mad Men, much more serious. Um, but, you know, the thin black tie, the black suit, the short haircut, the, the stare. He was a chain smoker, unfortunately, which caught up with him at the end. Uh, but he was a very serious and friendly and you know, just brilliant guy. Stephen Talbot remembering his work in two episodes of The Twilight Zone. Our thanks to Stephen, authors Mark DeWidziak and Nick Parisi, and Rod Serling's daughter, Anne, for joining us on our special tribute to The Twilight Zone on its 60th anniversary. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell, hope you'll join us next time on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.